Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. There are actually really people out there that really will just kill people. Like you hear about people murdered and getting killed. But hearing about it, it, it kind of it scared me. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting super far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen, but they're sitting very close to each other, almost on top of each other, if I may. Almost too close. Yep. Almost yep. too close. We've kept our friends, friends close and our enemies closer. Well, Close, Billy, closest. Billy, say that with like some kind of excitement. <laughs> <laughs> We kept our friends close and our enemies closest. Yeah. So Alexis and Billy are officially in New York quarantining for a project and they have decided to use one mic to record today. Both of them on one. I've done it before with Jared for a podcast. It's not fun. We are heads together like Tweedledee and Tweedledumest. Uh, we are leaning into it. This is who we are now. I love it. Billy, what day is it today? There's a lot of days today, people. There's the this is the most days I've ever seen in the history yeah. of the day. It's World Play-Doh Day. Mm-hmm. Love Play-Doh. If anybody's ever tasted Play-Doh, what does it taste like? Tastes like Play-Doh. Bread. Salt. It tastes like salt. <laughs> it's just like chewy salt. It is a little bit yeasty. Yes. But it's also National Tattoo Story Day. Oh, what does that so, mean? Yikes. That means if you have a tattoo and you have a story about it, you're supposed to tell people about it. Do either of you want to tell any stories about your tattoos? I know Alexis doesn't. Yep. I own my mistakes. (laughs) Alexis, why don't you talk about your tattoo? Alexis, do you have a tattoo that you wouldn't consider a mistake? No. I only have (laughs) tattoos so far. Uh, the one tattoo I plan to not regret is one Jack is supposed to be designing for me. As, and as soon as it's safe to get it, I'm going to get it. Jack's going to draw for me a little, the little tank that could. Little mini tank. Little mini tank. And I'm going to get that one. But no, the two tattoos I have are, I'd say the big one is a regret, but I have it mostly removed. But then the little one is a regret if I'm honest about what it means. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, I lie to most people about what it is. <laughs> All I have to say is if you plan on getting a tattoo with a romantic partner, just know that it is the kiss of death. Yeah. Take it from me. Don't do that. (laughs) I told you when you showed it to me, I was like, "Mm, that's nice. Oh, no. Jack, I remember the very moment we were in Park City. You go, Lex, like, you know that it's probably not going to work out now. (laughs) And I started crying. I'm like, no, Jack, that's not true. Things are going really well. And I think we had broken up a a week later. No, it was literally a week later. Maybe not even. Damn it, Jack, you oracle of truth. How dare you? I know. I'm just just that good, you know? Billy, do you want to explain any of your tattoos? Yeah, I've got a tattoo. I'll explain uh, one of them. The one on my back is the tattoo of a Tonka truck, and it says Will on it, and it's for my son because mm-hmm. he was going in for heart surgery when he was like 16 months old, and all the doctors kept saying, oh, he'll, he's going to be in bed for a week, bed for a week, and then one doctor said, he's built like a Tonka truck. He'll be fine, and he Aww. was up within a day running around. So I got, cute. I got a Tonka truck, and then I got – a uh, his scar, so like where his scar mm. is, my, my my I have a uh, a scar. That's tattoo. a very sweet tattoo, Billy. Quite sweet, quite sweet. All right, well, you know that's enough of that. 
So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. I'm going to start today's episode with one of my favorite quotes of all time. Isaac Dinson said, the cure for anything is salt water, sweat, tears, or the sea. And this is not to sound trite, but there is no denying that the ocean represents something significant for each and every one of us. Its vastness, its depth, its unattainable understanding, and humanity's universal draw to its edge. So today's case takes us back to April 16th of 2001. Shaggy's song Angel was playing on the radio. Great song. And the movies Bridget Jones's Diary and Blow were in theaters. The setting for today's case is Granite City, Illinois. Granite City is home to several large manufacturing corporations, including U.S. Steel, Precoat Metals, Capri Sun, Kraft Foods, Prairie Farms, and American Steel. And we begin today's story with our first degree's childhood, and his name is Tommy. And he and his sister were raised by their mother in a modern family, which was way ahead of its time, in a city that was dead set on being locked in the past. Granite City was a very, I'm just going to say, it was just a small-minded town. We had a cross burn in the yard. My neighbor downstairs, he was um, mixed. His mom was white, his dad was black. But he was my best friend. They didn't like black people. They didn't like gay people, which right there, I was like screwed because my mom was gay. My, my best friend's black. I was raised by like some raised by two women. It wasn't a dangerous place to live. It was just small minded. We were very poor too. It was like a very poor area. So like we mentioned, Tommy's family was modern for the time and also for the place that he called home. Tommy's mom was gay. So generally speaking, he was usually being parented by two women. And this was normal for him. And you know, we say this all the time on the podcast, it takes a village to raise kids. And the village that helped raise Tommy and his sister was composed of many of their mother's friends, which included some gay couples. One of her best friends was named Mikey Keller, and he became a key figure in Tommy's life. She was very eclectic, and her all of her friends were, so that's, that's how I met Mikey, actually. She was always a musician. I mean, she's my mom, so she's still beautiful. But she's very, very beautiful. Um, she had us young, so she was young. She was in her 20s at this point. She had me when she was 19. And she just accumulated this group of, um, most of them were gay men. It was very a lot of fun. Mikey was, I could always count on him because he lived very close, like a block, two blocks away. Like if we didn't have something at home or my, or my, mom, or my mom wasn't around or didn't come home or whatever. My sister Sherry and I would just go to Mikey and Donnie's. And I don't know, just was very safe there. Mikey and Donnie's. It's where Tommy and his sister would go often. Many times the couple looked over the siblings when their mom was busy or needed help with them. He always smiled at you. He was a little guy. Like, he wasn't tall. And he wasn't big. He was very petite. But he didn't come off as, like, some gay people do that, like, some queens do, basically. Like, in your face, like, I'm really gay. And it was almost like he didn't want people to know, even though it was kind of hard for them not to tell just by his mannerisms. And I don't know, he was very like Mikey. I don't know. He's definitely a major, major, major person in my, like creating who I am. Tommy's childhood evolved. And while he didn't know his dad in the beginning, he did eventually meet his dad. And then he eventually visited his dad. And then he eventually decided to stay with his dad for the remainder of his high school years. And once Tommy graduated from high school, he decided to become a flight attendant. And from there, he began traveling the world. Tommy got out of Granite City and began exploring a world that was accepting, that encouraged diversity and creativity. He started building a life of his own. And in exploring the world, life got busy. But he always made it a priority to visit his mom and his hometown when he could. Fast forward then to... 2000, which would be the year before he was killed, I was a flight attendant for American Airlines. 
I was on a layover and I was, I had like a day and then I traded a trip with somebody so that I could hang out with my mom for the night. And when I got there, I asked her, I said, oh my God, you know, when's the last time you talked to Mikey? I haven't talked to him in forever. I had only been a flight attendant for a couple of years at that point. I don't know. I just wanted to, I was at my mom's and I wanted to see Mikey. I knew Donnie wasn't around. So by this point, sadly, Mikey's partner Donnie had died from complications related to HIV. And following Donnie's passing, Mikey never wanted to be with anyone else. And we mean ever again. Mikey had conviction when he said that Donnie had been the love of his life and he wasn't interested in finding another one. Okay, so back to Tommy being in town for a few days. Seeing Mikey was a priority. So Tommy pressed his mom for information about Mikey and what he was up to. So I'm like, so what's he doing? He's just by himself? Like, when do you see him? You know, how often do you guys hang out? I'm like, let's call him. Give me his number. I'm going to call him. And I called him and asked what he's doing. And he wasn't doing anything. So he came over. And when he came, he got to the place. He was, he was so like, he just like so happy to see me. He was so like, I was like, oh my God, he thinks I'm like so awesome. Like he's so proud of me. Um, And it felt, it was really cool. The night Tommy reconnected with Mikey and his mom, they all went out. They all went dancing and they had an amazing time. Tommy told Mikey all about his new life, traveling the world, and it's during this conversation that Tommy learned that Mikey had actually never been on a plane before. In fact, he'd never seen a lot of things. I'm like, you should come and visit me. I lived in Miami. And he's like, Tommy, I've never been on a plane. And I'm like, you're kidding me. Like, we live across the street from the ocean. He's like, I've never seen the ocean. I'm like, shut the hell up. You've never seen the ocean. You've never been on a plane. I, I was excited. Because he was going to get, I was going to get to get him. He'd never been out of Granite City, never seen anything else in the world except for small-minded people that didn't like gay people. Following this visit home, Tommy and Mikey start planning Mikey's trip to Miami. He was couldn't believe it was really true. Is this really going to happen? I'm like, yes, it's going to, it's going to happen. I was really excited about it. I was happy that I was able to, like, you know, say, hey, thank you for being there for me and my sister when we were kids. You know, he was there a lot for us. Three weeks later, and. I was on a layover, I had a 36-hour layover in Las Vegas. I was out with the crew. We had dinner. I got back to my hotel. I had a missed call. Like, the little thing was beeping, and it was my mom. So called her, and she's crying, like sobbing. I'm like, what is wrong? Within the span of only a few weeks, the unthinkable happened. Wouldn't have been a million years, guess, anyone had died or much less been murdered. Like that, like he was murdered. It's like Mikey. It's like he so didn't make any sense. And she said, somebody killed Mikey. Mikey's been, Mikey's dead. I'm like, mom, just calm down and tell me what, what's going on, you know? They, they, these people murdered Mikey. How did this happen? And more importantly, why did this happen? Well, we're about to tell you. As we mentioned, Mikey Keller had lived in Granite City all his life. And in April of 2001, he had been working as a chef at the Granite City restaurant called The Ponderosa. And Mikey was really, really good with his money. And he put basically everything he had into savings. He eventually bought a house. And for the most part, he could afford the things that he wanted. Simple pleasures like a big screen TV, a stereo system, and the car that he drove, which was an Oldsmobile. On Monday, April 16th, Mikey worked his shift at The Ponderosa. And the day began like countless others before it. Mikey went to work at the steakhouse. He spent the day filling orders in the kitchen. But things were slow that day, so he left early. He said goodbye to his coworkers, left the building, got in his car, and drove off. The following day, friends and family couldn't reach Mikey. Which was alarming because normally he was pretty good about returning calls and getting back to people. His friends eventually became so alarmed by his radio silence that they called the police and asked them to do a welfare check. When police walked into Mikey's home, things were immediately out of place, they can tell. It was clear that items were missing. And in the living room, there was a space where a big TV should have been. But even more alarming, there was a large amount of blood they found in various parts of the home. So the search for Mikey had now taken on a sinister tone. Where could he be and what could have happened? So the police had no idea where to begin the search for him. 
Was Mikey in a new relationship? Was he a guy who liked to party? No one knew where to start. But what the police did know is that Mikey drove an Oldsmobile sedan, which was now missing from his house. So the best place to start was to issue a bolo and instruct patrol officers to keep an eye out for this vehicle. And of course, the hope is that they could find the car and then find Mikey, which would hopefully be imminent after locating this vehicle. So lucky for them, it wouldn't be long before police got a hit. And it was Wednesday night when the police found Mikey's Oldsmobile only three blocks from his home. It was in an isolated parking lot behind an apartment complex. So the close proximity of Mikey's car to his home only being three blocks away was really perplexing. You know, what does this mean and where was he? The police examined the vehicle and it was spotless. So spotless, it seemed like it might have been wiped down. The officers decided to canvas the block where the car had been found, so they spoke to each person on the street that they encountered. They wanted to know if anyone had seen when the car had been parked there. Who had been driving it? Had anyone been seen coming or going? These were the questions they asked everyone. And they got the same response from everyone. No. No one knew how the car got there, and no one knew who left it there. But when they encountered an elderly woman named Mary, they finally got a different response. They questioned Mary, and she casually responded that yes, she knows how the car got there. It had been driven there by the husband of her granddaughter. But the car had actually been parked in her very own driveway first. So this gave the police pause. What exactly is going on here? Mary's granddaughter was named Selena Sergison. And the previous day, Selena and her husband, Eugene Swafford, had driven up to Mary's home in the Oldsmobile. One of Eugene's friends was also with them, and his name was Jeremy Brown. Once the trio arrived, they asked Mary if they could store some stuff in her basement for a while. And Mary didn't have a problem with that, so she said yes. And then they started unloading the stuff. Inside a trash can outside of Mary's home, the police found numerous items that appeared to have come from Mikey's Oldsmobile, including the car's registration and a black hat that bore the inscription, quote, Ponderosa. So, of course, following these new revelations, the police had many thoughts as well as many fears. Mikey was not with these three people who were driving his car. His car had been wiped clean and items were missing from his home and there was blood in his home on the floor. So this isn't good and the situation seemed to be increasingly ominous. So luckily, the police were able to track down Eugene within mere hours. Police learned that Eugene is 25 years old and he too had been born and raised in Granite City. So some backstory here. Mikey was one of eight siblings, so he was from a huge, huge close family. And Mikey's little sister, Lori, had actually grown up with Eugene in grade school. So they played together as kids, but drifted apart as adulthood crept in. So Lori ended up moving to Chicago to become a productive member of society while Eugene started dabbling in petty crime and burglary. So now Eugene was sitting in the interrogation room across from these officers who were pressing him for information. Where was Mikey? Why did he and his friends have Mikey's car? And why did they have Mikey's stuff? The police already knew the answer to some of these questions. Eugene had burglary charges on his record, and it was clear that he robbed Mikey's house. What was not clear was where Mikey was. And while police still had hope that Mikey could be okay, the reality of the situation was really starting to set in. There was a lot of blood at Mikey's house. And the sinking feeling that Mikey could be dead was spreading. What started as questioning transitioned into a hard-hitting interrogation. Hours went by, and Eugene finally cracked. And the story he told them was horrifying. Here's what happened. Eugene knew Mikey Keller. It's not clear how well he knew him, but he did know that he had a massive big-screen TV that Eugene coveted. Eugene also knew that Mikey lived alone and that if all went according to plan, Mikey would be tied up at work all afternoon and into the evening. So Eugene, his wife Selena, and his friends Jeremy Brown and Alan Hosian 
drove to Mikey's home with the intention of robbing the home. They parked down the street and gathered near Mikey's house on the 2100 block of Benton Avenue. Selena stayed in the car and acted as the lookout, and Alan stayed outside and also kept watch while Eugene and Jeremy broke into Mikey's home. And it was during the day, it was broad daylight. Mikey shouldn't have been there, and he wouldn't have, except remember he left work early because it was slow on Mondays, so he left the Ponderosa Steakhouse early just to go home and relax. So it turns out there was a connection between Eugene and Mikey. You see, they both worked at the Ponderosa Steakhouse restaurant, and this is how Eugene knew that Mikey was supposed to be working the afternoon shift at the restaurant the day that he decided to rob his home. Jeremy and Eugene entered the home from the back and started pillaging Mikey's belongings. And then Mikey pulled up in his Oldsmobile. And he didn't notice the two individuals in the car parked just down the road keeping watch. He was just coming home after a day at work at the Ponderosa Grill like he had done for every day for the last 10 years. But when Mikey stepped inside of his house, his nightmare really began. Mikey had no idea that he was interrupting a burglary taking place just behind his front door. And immediately, Jeremy and Eugene grabbed Mikey. They put him in a chair and they tied him up with duct tape and electrical cords. We have to imagine that once Mikey was taped to this chair, the perpetrators must have known that there was no turning back. Mikey knew Eugene and he likely would identify him as the burglar to police should he be allowed to live. The minutes ticked by and Mikey remained tied to the chair and Eugene and Jeremy continued to rob Mikey's house. And that's when there was an innocent sounding knock at Mikey's front door. It was Mikey's very dear friend and his name was Larry Miller and he was just popping by for a visit, popping by to say hello as he's done many times before. Eugene then ran to the front door and held the mail slot closed so Larry couldn't push it open and look inside. Jeremy held a knife to Mikey's throat and forced him to pretend everything was fine and to yell out to his friend Larry that he was just taking a nap and to come back later, everything was fine. So Larry left, his footsteps moved away from the front door, and as Larry walked away, so did Mikey's last shred of hope to be saved. In trying to imagine the horror of this experience, Mikey had to have known what was coming. After these men had taken all they could from Mikey, who was helplessly tied to his chair, Jeremy Brown began stabbing him. Eugene held him down as Jeremy stabbed him in the back and in the chest. And police were seriously at a loss for what they were hearing. This savage murder committed for the purpose of robbing this man, it was just inconceivable. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen posed that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so listen, we are busy ladies over here on The First Degree, and when I have a moment of free time, I don't want to spend it grocery shopping. I want to spend it rotting on the couch and watching reality TV, and that is why I love Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is a go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials, and the convenience of getting everything online then quickly shipped to my doorstop is such a huge time saver. So Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So you can go on their website and use their filters to suit any of your lifestyle needs. If you're allergic to a certain ingredient, if you just don't want to have it in your life, that's why Thrive Market is so awesome. So whether you're looking for organic snacks for your kids or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with just a few clicks. 
clicks. I love this so much because I don't want to read every ingredient when I go to the grocery store. It's so easy to do it online, honestly, when I'm rotting on the couch. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash first for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash first. Thrivemarket.com slash first. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Following Eugene's confession, he agreed to lead the police to where they had hidden Mikey's body. They had wrapped Mikey in sheets, in blankets, and a rug. He was tightly wrapped up in duct tape as well. They dumped him in an abandoned grain silo where Eugene had played as a little kid. As Mikey's body was taken in for autopsy, officers worked to get the other conspirators into custody. They also started processing the multiple crime scenes for evidence and took inventory of the items these monsters stole from this sweet man. Meanwhile, word of Mikey's murder started spreading to his loved ones and throughout his network of friends, which is how our first degree Tommy found out. I remember being really angry, really angry. I was, I was confused. I didn't believe it. I'm like, are you, like I kept asking my mom, are you sure you're, you're, you heard it right. But she said that, you know, they, he was missing for a couple of days and the way that he was found, she had heard that he had been probably tortured. Like she, she said, they didn't just like kill him. And like, it was, it was bad. Like they brutally murdered him. Like I said, they get envious and mean. If they see something that somebody has that they don't think should have stuff like that, or why don't I have that? I, I just cried. I cried for that whole, that whole night. I kept drinking, actually, which was stupid, and just cried. I could just brush through the back, like the back of your eyelids. Like when you blink, you just see black. And all I could see was everything that he was going through and his helplessness. And I just, you just want to just like go there and save him, you know, and it's already done. But yet you're, you're trying to put the, your brain, like tried to put these horrible pictures of what happened to him for whatever reason in my mind and it just you just want to save him this shouldn't happen to to him he was one of the good good ones in the world you know that despite where he was and everything around him was still kind and caring and giving and even if he was not treated the same way he didn't like change how he treated other people and this i don't know just it's fucked up it's fucked up Nobody deserves to die that way. And Tommy's right. Mikey did not deserve to die this way, and nobody does. Mikey's autopsy revealed that his cause of death was the result of multiple stab wounds, slashing, and cuts. He had a huge gash from ear to ear under his neck, and he had countless stab wounds. The amount of wounds did not seem to align with the reason the suspect said he was killed. All of this over a big screen TV just wasn't really adding up. He was stabbed so many times and with such force that the blade of the knife that was primarily used to kill him had broken off inside of his body, lodged between two vertebrae deep within his back. And once this happened, the killer had retrieved another knife to keep going. And if you ask people like Tommy and others who are familiar with the mindset of many Granite City residents, many believe that robbery was not the only reason for Mikey's unusually cruel murder. They believe that his sexuality had a hand in the vicious attack on his life. He's very bashful, very shy, very humble, very soft-spoken. Like, I can't, I just like, the thought of somebody doing what they did to him or anybody that's that like frail, like it's, it's like not somebody that you do that to. It's like, you just like push them down and take what you want. And you don't have to, you know what I mean? 
Like, it's like, just take it. They're giving it to you. It's like, why do all that? And my mind actually went immediately to maybe they knew and maybe it's just because they, he was gay. Maybe it was a hate crime. I don't know. Just didn't make any sense. Following the arrest of all four perpetrators, Eugene led police to the location where the other piece of the murder weapon was located. Jeremy Brown had tossed it in the bushes following the disposal of Mikey's body. Other evidence was recovered as well, including surveillance footage of the four suspects going on a shopping spree at Sears using Mikey's credit cards. They bought $400 worth of tennis shoes, St. Louis Cardinals jerseys, and baby clothes. As we've mentioned, there were four defendants in this case. So to put it mildly, there were a fuck ton of court proceedings that we won't bore you with as far as all of the details are concerned. But here are the broad strokes of the evidence against the four of them. As far as the trials for the accused, the most damning piece of evidence was Eugene's confession. And witnesses who were called to testify painted a picture of a planned burglary and the suspect seemed completely remorseless following Mikey's killing almost as if they felt entitled to his life as they did to his possessions. One testified that Eugene and Jeremy wanted to borrow his truck to retrieve an entertainment stand, and such a stand had been left behind at the murder scene. Another testified that Brown phoned him the day of the murder and offered to sell him a television set like the one that was missing from Mikey's house. The surveillance tapes of the shopping spree were played in court, picking out items and leaving the store with shopping bags like they didn't have a care in the world as Mikey's bound body was decomposing in a grain silo. In fact, when Jeremy Brown was arrested, he was actually wearing some of the loot that he scored during his Sears shopping trip, a new pair of Levi's jeans with a Cardinal shirt and a cap. He bought these things with the hard-earned money that Mikey had been saving for years. The rest of the items purchased with Mikey's credit card were found in Mary Weaver's basement where Eugene and his wife, Selena, were staying. So it's no surprise that people capable of such a heinous act started pointing the finger at one another in an attempt to distance themselves from their involvement in the killing itself. Suspect Alan Hosian pleaded guilty to first-degree murder and residential burglary. He was ultimately sentenced to 27 years in prison. And he agreed to testify against his co-conspirators in return for a reduction of his sentence to 20 years and transfer to a medium security facility. Selena Sergison pleaded not guilty, but was ultimately convicted of first-degree murder. And she was sentenced to 28 years imprisonment. She later agreed to testify at Jeremy Brown's trial in return for a reduction of the charges against her, brought down to residential burglary, with a sentence of 15 years. Now, Jeremy Brown was found guilty of first-degree murder and given a 75-year sentence for his role in Mikey's killing. And then last but not least, there's Eugene Swafford, who was the man who grew up playing with Mikey's little sister, Lori. He's the man who worked with Mikey at the Ponderosa Steakhouse. He was convicted and sentenced to 50 years. Mikey's sister, Lori, had moved from Granite City to Chicago, but she drove down for as many of the court proceedings as she could. And during one media interview outside the court, Lori described her brother as, quote, the sweetest soul I've ever encountered in my whole life. If any of his siblings needed shoes, Michael was there. If any of them needed money for a field trip, he was there. He also showed his brothers and sisters that hard work could go a long way toward pulling them through difficult times. But he had to suffer at someone else's hand because they were selfish, because they decided to commit a crime, and because they needed some extra cash. The reason that he left work early was he had invited my mom to come over that night. They were going to watch something. And my mom said she didn't go because she wasn't feeling well. And she's like, can you imagine if I, I went? She goes, I might. She goes, I either, may, have even, may have either saved them or I would be dead too. There are actually really people out there that really will just kill people. Like you hear about people murdered and getting killed, but hearing about it, it, it it, it, it kind of it scared me, you know. It was scary. I was got scared for my mom living there. I'm like, just I'm like they just came to his place and just killed him, and like, you know, taped him to a chair, tied him up. It's just like, what, what? Nobody should have to experience anything like that. Like, you could just take what you wanted. You know what I mean? What do you need to like maim them, kill them, like make them suffer? Unless they're just 
their brains just don't function, I guess, properly. It was just surreal that he was dead. I mean, that he was just there and seeing him and all the goodness in him and the smiling and the happy and the excitement. Mikey Keller was 40 years old and only weeks away from his first plane ride. Weeks away from his first chance to gaze at the ocean when his life was callously and brutally taken away. The perpetrators maintain that this horrific act was motivated solely by robbery. Many believe that if you read between the lines, the extreme violence and torturous components were indicative of deep-rooted hatred and intolerance. The future was not all that the Slayers took from Michael Keller. They took everything he worked hard for. They took away even the simplest pleasure like putting his toes in the sand. It may not be a consolation, but in death, Mikey at the very least was given the peace of being buried right alongside the love of his life, Donald Briggs. big big thank you to Tommy for being our first degree in this episode if you have a story you would like to tell please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com you can follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek join our Facebook group by searching the first degree in the search bar we're talking true crime all the time and stick around because we're gonna kill some time and remember only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends closed but not that close. Billy, do you forget how this goes? Yeah, Billy is, uh, he's jet lagged, everybody. Please forgive him. Forgive him. Happy Play-Doh Day. Happy Play-Doh Day. Happy Embarrassing Tattoo Day. No, it was Tattoo Story Day. Oh, Happy Tattoo Story Day. Yeah. Beep, beep, motherfuckers. Shout out to Jared Monaco for sound design and creating original music for The First Degree. We love you, Jared. We'd be lost without you. Thank you to our production team, Caitlin Cleveland, Taylor Rogers, and Alan Santiago for Podcast One. Sources for today's episode includes court documents, the Edwardsville Intelligencer, the Alton Telegraph, QC Online, St. Louis Dispatch, and as always, our first three guest is always our largest source. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. All right, well, welcome to another episode of Killing Time. We are the farthest apart we've ever been in our entire lives, but we're going to make it work. Do you guys want to um, talk about your situation, your setup situation right now? Well, we're not exactly far apart because we are sitting right next to each other in quarantine in an undisclosed location. We already said we were in New York, Billy. I just said in New York. but We already said Long Island, (laughs) Billy. It might be Long Island. It might not. I can't confirm or deny. <laughs> do you want to uh do you want to explain your physical setup though? Like why you guys are so extremely close physically? So usually usually we have our own mics and our own headsets and our own setups, but we decided to try to use the same mic and the same headset 
Um, so me and Billy are literally shoulder to shoulder trying to share a mic. Yeah. And it very well might be the last time we ever do this. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if this is going to work for me long term, <laughs> but we're going to try it. We're already too far into it right now to stop. But yeah. And we're also in the basement of this house that we're quarantining in. And we it's literally is a movie theater. Yes. Which is cool. Oh, it is? And I know. A, and, a, and a very psychedelic mural behind the bar that we'll have to sh- like post photos of. Is this the one that I'm seeing that looks like a uh, Cheshire the cat behind you? Yes, but if you if I panned the Zoom computer uh, to the left, you'd see a sun, and then you'd see this weird. Actually, it's very it's very you, Jack. It's very Dolly. I uh, when we got here, I showed it to Billy. I was like, "Look at this man," and he's like, "Those are corn kernels." I'm like, "That's a man." <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, he couldn't see it because it's he like the have our- what the fuck exactly. is that thing called? The war. Uh- you know, the ink blot test. Yes. Yes. He couldn't see it. And he thought the teeth were just corn kernels. I'm like, those are a man's teeth. And he he suddenly had a breakthrough. You know, art is in the eye of the beholder, as they always say. They're corn kernels to Billy. I don't know what that means. What is the corn symbolism in art? I don't know. Maybe it meant that I was just hungry and we hadn't eaten for on the plane because the plane didn't have any food. I think he's just sad about uh, Halloween probably being canceled. Yes. I know, Billy. What are you going to do? Listen, Halloween is not canceled. Halloween is every day. <laughs> Halloween's a state of mind. Halloween is not canceled. Okay. Are you right. going to – Except they sent out a message over the Citizen app that – trick-or-treating was banned. I think they said trick-or-treating was banned and then they took it back and then they said highly advised against. It would be odd if anybody trick-or-treated right now, but you know, I guess to to each his own. People are doing crazier things. Well, do you guys remember when you were younger, the trick-or-treating, if someone wasn't home, they'd put a bowl outside with a bowl of candy? That's not yeah. unless somebody just touches a bunch of candy mm-hmm. or sneezes on it. What I was thinking is that the kids would just walk past the house and then you would throw candy at the kids and then maybe they would pick it up. Maybe they would hit him in the head or maybe it would hit, it would land in their bag. Or you can get one of those like bazooka guns and just like shoot the candy yeah. out like 30 feet away. Or you play a game like a ring toss where you throw a Snickers into somebody's pumpkin basket. That's and it's like a, a hole in yeah. one. You know, there are many ways to socially distance during Halloween. And honestly, at like where the state of humanity is right now, isn't trick-or-treating kind of weird and like a little bit dangerous for little children to be going to different houses alone? I think so. Billy? Uh, I think, no, I think it's it represents one of the most magical times. And yes, I know what it represents. But it shows our humanity. And uh, you know what? There has never really been a case of anybody dying from um, from a tainted candy, except for a guy that killed his kid. What about like the razor blades and the candies? Or no, was that- that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, it just didn't. It's just not really happened before. Hmm. It's just a big man. Yeah. Just seems like such an easy play to mm-hmm. to get in there, and then everybody's in a costume. Yeah. Okay. And we're back. I don't know what happened. We just had a technical difficulty, which honestly, as is expected when we're really switching things up and you're trying to deal with technology in places you don't know what the fuck is going on. Right. We're back. But my my question to you, Billy, is are you doing anything special for Halloween, even though it is quote unquote canceled? I know it is not actually canceled to some people. Like, is there anything that you're trying to do to keep the Halloween spirit alive? I, I, I honestly, I celebrate Halloween every day, so it's not anything <laughs> that's different. I'm sorry. As somebody who's been living with Billy for over a week now, I can say that's a lie. <laughs> I, he hasn't done anything you have to not celebrate. Stepped your foot in a foot in my bedroom. You How no do you celebrate what? Halloween okay, every but day? I can, tell you, I can tell you that I went into Billy's room and I was disgusted because he's <laughs> messier than a teenage college student, and I was like, "Are you?" joking me yeah because that was the first that was before i put up my decorations and everything and you know what you're not allowed in there so okay now here's a good segue how is living together (laughs) what have you discovered about each other it's been what one week since you guys have been there i'm gonna go first billy doesn't know how to cook billy doesn't know how to clean Ooh. Billy doesn't know how to uh he's tried lately after i said something he started he's like it's it's kind of unreal. Okay. Well, I understand not knowing how to cook because yeah. that is a skill, but cleaning is not a skill. It's either you clean or you don't clean. Pretty sure I've been cleaning. Uh, yes. 
And Alexis doesn't know how to stop. <laughs> stop what? Anything? In it, just in everything. Yeah, obviously. I'm a fucking psychopath. I'm like, so, um, everything. Yeah, and, and Alexis, Alexis also narrates her everything that she does. <laughs> everything she's oh, doing. Oh, I know. Alexis is making a wrap, and here's what she's going to put in it. And then it's just like, I'm going to get a cucumber. And, it's, <laughs> it's and she does it in her little voice. Yeah. And then literally we'll, we'll all be working in a room and I'll be like, I'm going to go upstairs for two minutes. And people are like, just go. Why do we all have to know that? And I was like, well, I just in case anyone was wondering where I was or when I'd be back, I thought you should all know. I'm like, I'm going to get some sparkling water. And everyone's like, shut the fuck up. But I can't. You're, you're narrating your own movie. That's right. But I will say Billy doesn't clean or put <laughs> – I'll be like, oh, he's like, yeah, I'm gonna put the dishes in the dish. He's like, yeah, I'm gonna clean, and then it's just a sink full of dishes. I'm like, that's not cleaning. That's putting dirty dishes in a sink. Mm. I've seen dirty dishes in your sink many, many times. I don't have a dishwasher at my house. Well, you know what? We have a dishwasher here. I have a dishwasher at my house. Come, go see. Go look at my house. My house is is impeccably clean. Okay. Anyways, before we jump down this house in L.A. Yeah. You don't cook. Yeah, that's okay though. It doesn't matter. It's Listen, yeah, I don't matter. cook either. There's nothing wrong with not cooking. No, the problem is, is that me and Jeff, who we're here with, have been cooking for Billy every night, and he's like, "I'll clean if you cook," and we do, and then he puts the dishes in the dishwasher <laughs> and doesn't clean anything. I'm like, that's not the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I will say, I have offered to get McDonald's and Taco Bell every night, and I've been denied. I don't. It's interesting. He said he would get me chicken nuggets last night, but then didn't. <laughs> So, because we're waiting for the chicken nuggets to be spicy, which is coming out, I believe, uh, when this podcast comes out. I think it's the 16th. Yes. Really? Yeah. Oh, the spicy chicken nug is almost here. Yeah. Well, I think that Alexis deserves a nugget before then. Many nuggets. Because maybe, maybe tonight's the night, Billy. Yeah, after this, really? A, no. a late night chicken nugget. What's so wrong about that? He did order Carvel last night for the house, which is nice. Wow, Carvel, that's such an East Coast oh, thing. Yeah. It was. It was really good. All right. Well, we're 10 minutes in. We haven't gotten to the crux of what Jack wanted to do during this. Well, listen, we. Time. I had an idea, but I still have questions about things going on because you guys took a flight to New York. Yes. And I want to know how the experience was because there's people like me that are scared to get on a plane still. Like, how was it? Was it cleanly? Did you feel nervous? What was the experience? So I will say we were, um, we flew JetBlue and they were really good. There was no one sitting in the middle seats and our flight was almost empty. So it was very, very minimal as far as capacity goes. They didn't serve any food, which is super responsible because they don't want people taking off their masks. Exactly. But they didn't tell us in advance. Mm. So then of course we're just cranky. But they did and they didn't serve alcohol either. Right. They didn't so serve we any drinks. Be- no drinks. No. no drinks. Little tiny bottles they of water. Bottles of water and a granola bar I think they gave us. And a cheese its But they were whole wheat, so see mm, no. They do that on no. is it Delta they do the whole wheat cheese it. A cheese it's I have like a gripe with anything that tries to like m- really mess with their original recipe that's delicious like a cheese it. Okay, if, if I wanted something healthy I'd eat a wheat thin and that's still not for my whole wheat. If I, I want a cheese it, I want cheese. The whole wheat part of the cheese it is not making it healthy. But that's something that like past me would be like, yes, I'm being healthy, and this doesn't count because it's a whole wheat cheese it. When it's really just as bad for you as the regular cheese it. So just eat the fucking cheese it. And I will say though that the flight from gate to gate, and actually gate to getting our, our luggage was the fastest I've ever gotten from Los Angeles to New York. Uh, well, because there's nobody on your plane. Yeah, there's nobody on the plane. There's no there's no air traffic. There's there's just nothing. It's just you're up and you're down and then you get your your luggage super quick and then you're out the door. Did you guys feel nervous on the flight? Was there anybody taking off their masks or being naughty? No. I think it was um it was pretty pretty cool, pretty delightful. Well, that's good. I guess that makes the flying ex- But here's the thing, it's like some people are like my flight was fucking packed. People were like sneezing all over each other. It's like you just never know until you get there. Yes. You never know. I know for sure when our stuff was booked because it's connected to like a corporate 
production situation. It's like they would only book us on a flight that had um, no booking middle seats and and mm. things like that. So for us, we felt good about it. We also knew we were quarantining mandatory. We don't even have a rental car at the house we're staying at because it's like you're not leaving the house. We knew we had two weeks. So heaven forbid we were exposed. We're not going to make anyone else sick right? because we're, we're really abiding by the mandatory two-week quarantine period. So we felt good about it and we're lucky because I know a lot of people don't have the means to then like quarantine for two weeks after they get somewhere. Yeah. And, and I will say that the New York State uh, contact tracing team has been pretty fantastic. You know, they, yeah. they check in with us, they've called us, they send us texts every day uh, saying, do you have symptoms or not? Really? So they're, they're on it. Yeah. Oh, did you have to like sign up for something to do that? Yeah, yeah. So once you get off the plane, you have to fill out a form. You have to? Yeah, you have for to. New York. And put it in a box. Yeah. When we landed, they filled out a form. And the contact tracer called Billy first and then she called me. And I, it's funny, we were working when she called and I ended up on the phone with her for like 30 minutes. And they were like, well, why were you on the phone with her for so long? And I was like, well, she asked me what I was doing. And I said, you know, I explained this true crime thing. And she actually ended up, she knows a serial killer who was arrested and convicted. And she started telling me about it. No way. Yeah. And then she was like, oh, did a third per- did, did everyone in your household get called by me yet? And we said, no, one's missing. And then she called the other guy today and they ended up connecting over like the Grateful Dead because she used to travel with the Grateful Dead. And it was like, oh my we've God, been, like, bonding with our one contract tracer at, at the New York Health Department. That's how lonely it is. That's how lonely it's it is. Like you need like outside human contact that you're like, please. Exactly. <laughs> it's really funny. So, you know, I mean, they're being very vigilant here in New York. We're also being very vigilant to not uh, perpetuate any hypothetical uh, contamination, but you know, we've been super safe and it's, it was a very safe process, you know? Okay. And it's why the New York numbers are better than like we're in California. The I California know numbers. California, they don't have a contact tracer. Do they, is that just New York? Well, this is the thing. Yeah. It's just, well, this is the thing. It's like California is a really bad state. So New York, I don't think they're calling everybody. They called us because we're from California uh, and the number, and we don't have it under control. And they said, because when they called us, they said, you know, you're from a state with – that's considered a hotspot state. Um, so, yeah, because they wouldn't have the man and woman power to call everybody in, in – because they call us every day. That's so crazy. I didn't know it was that, like, intense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they're, not, they're not messing around. But because we're following the rules, we like it. Her name's – I'll give a first name. Her name's Barbara. She's been a delay. <laughs> My new bestie, Barbara, maybe yeah. she can be a first degree. Like how, isn't that the premise of the podcast yeah. where it's like, well, what's yeah. funny is that she, she told me about this serial killer. I'm not going to talk about it yet. Cause she's like, you can't say anything. I'm like, ma'am, I won't say anything. And, but she, she immediately got paranoid that she had said too much. And I was like, it's oh. okay, Barbara. You know. We're not going to expose you, Barbara. Don't worry. I hope she doesn't listen. Cause she literally, she's like, I Googled you. She was really funny. <laughs> Well, Barbara, if you're listening, we love you. Please think about, you know, being our first degree on a podcast coming up. I don't know. Would be interesting. Yeah, Barbara, it's going to be okay. Yeah. It's going to be okay. Okay. Well, I think we killed enough time. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah 16, 27. Beep. Oh, good job, Billy. What was the series? Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.